Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Nees, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give a little bit of background. I spoke with this week's guest, Anoa Changa, on March 8th, which was International Women's Day, but as last week was spring break, I did not release this recording until today. That said, some of the events that we discussed in the episode, such as Bernie Sanders' economic forum, have already transpired and have been linked in the show notes accordingly. On a related note, while we mentioned the absurd suggestion made by pseudo-leftists in the summer of 2017 that the left should see the alt-right, better known as white supremacists, as allies to quote-unquote take down the deep state, the same beaten-down dead horse revived itself again last week while the show was on break as two purported left-leaning news commentary shows supported the suggestion themselves. Ainoa and I, again, had to speak out against this proposal. You can learn more about the proposal itself and many of the problems with it by checking out the podcast discussion hosted by Benjamin Dixon that Anoa and I had uh, during last week. Now that that's out of the way, I'd like to formally introduce this week's guest, Anoa Changa. In addition to her work as an attorney, Anoa has been a grassroots digital organizer, providing strategic support to several progressive organizations. Anoa hosts the show, The Way with Anoa, a podcast and YouTube channel focusing on politics, news, and community engagement. She serves as the Director of Political Advocacy and Co-Managing Editor at the Progressive Army, and she runs the Georgia-focused political blog, Peach Perspective. Here's my discussion with her. So today I'm here with Anoa Changa. Anoa, thank you so much for being on the show. Yo, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, so we go back, way back, way all the way back to the primaries of 2016, which is obviously yes. not that far back, but it feels like it was. A it feels like a lifetime. Years. It really does. It feel, And I think it took some of our, our lives as well. It definitely aged mm-hmm. a bunch of us uh, mentally, physically, <laughs> et cetera. Um, but it's funny because that's when I actually learned about you and your own sort of um, flavor of politics. So at the time, this was in, I want to say, pretty early on, around 2015, I noticed that you were working with Benjamin Dixon and you and several other people who are involved in his channel were making videos and talking about some of the issues that were happening in the primaries and challenges Mm -hmm. um, that you all saw as being black Bernie supporters. And so it's one of the things that I started actually listening to you all and sort of watching your watching the show about. And I said, wow, this is really interesting. And it made me focus in and listen a little bit more to Bernie Sanders's message given I was critical, but I also think that hearing other people who were coming from similar backgrounds or had, you know, similar political standpoints expressing support of him was really important. But I also noticed that with time and after the primaries were over that you became a rather outspoken critic of some of the things that went down during the primaries and areas where you thought Sanders could improve. So can you talk a bit about your experiences during the primaries and also where you are now in terms of your opinion of Sanders and what you think he needs to do, if at all, uh, to improve going forward? <laughs> well, as you probably know, I'm a I'm a neoliberal shill now, uh, <laughs> according to um, a certain reporter from <laughs> The Intercept. But um, 
But no, that's a really good question. I think the evolution coming out of the primary process and getting to know a bunch of the staffers, you know, several staffers who worked on a campaign who now work with various organizations or running, you know, for office themselves, particularly, you know, getting to know uh, Marcus Farrell. Um, uh, Marcus is running for office now, too, right? Marcus is running for office out in Arizona. Okay. Michelle Watley does a lot of political work with the ACLU and other organizations out of Missouri. And actually, Michelle's like probably all over the Midwest now doing work. I mean, there's so many really great people that I got to know who worked on the campaign. Um, and, and, and folks range, you know, in their their opinion and even in their approach post primary, you know, what they did and stuff. So that was really good to get to talk to people because they were on the inside. Right. You know, so they had that that perspective also from the outside, you know, as a grassroots supporter, um, I was getting started through working with Women for Bernie, which is now Women for Justice um, and, and African-Americans for Bernie, um, which I, I'm no longer I'm no longer affiliated with either. Hmm. But um so, um, so, so working with Women for Bernie, which is now Women for Justice, um, I actually I ended up becoming a part of their senior, their their, their core leadership team. Um, as a, I oversaw their their Facebook state page admin, and then also as the research team lead. And I actually that's how I actually started doing commentary. Um, was doing interviews uh, for on behalf of Women for Bernie, um, and and it was really interesting. Um, because actually I started doing that and then I started doing commentary for, um, Stacey Hopkins and Scout Smith. They, they're, they're local organizers. You guys probably heard, um, Stacey, if you, if you've listened to my show before you heard her on there. Um, but anyway, they used to do a podcast called Down South and Dirty on Sunday afternoon. So they would have me come on and do like a 10 minute rundown about what was going on, basically like in the Bernie progressive, like movement space, right? Really kind of capturing what the grassroots was doing. And that's actually how Ben heard me. So, so like thinking about my support of Bernie Sanders, like my support of Bernie Sanders, like I was one of those, I don't think I'm a vote in the primary people. And I have voted because I thought that's what my, I was supposed to do since I was 18. You know what I'm saying? So when um, this cycle came around and I looked, I was like, mm, I, I can't bring myself to vote for Hillary Clinton. I mean, like my thought was, I mean, we're obviously going to have to vote for her, you know what I'm saying? Because we don't want a Republican, blah, blah, blah. But my father, uh, you know, my father and my stepfather are both really, you know, engaging people in my life. And I was talking with my dad and my dad was like, we should check out Bernie Sanders. He's he just either he had just announced or he was about to announce. And I had heard of Bernie Sanders, but I wasn't like really that hip to him, you know, mm-hmm. per se. Um, but 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 my dad has been a Bernie person since like Air America days. And he's watched him filibuster on C-SPAN and stuff like this. So my dad was like on it. And so I was like, all right. So that's how I ended up volunteering then with Women for Justice. I saw it as an opportunity for me to get engaged and involved. Um, I had children when I was in college. So. I haven't been able to be as active, you know, politically and socially as I would like to have been, you know, I've been raising babies and that was my focus and coaching, you know, soccer and running football leagues. That's what I've been. That's what I have been focusing on previously. Now, with my kids, you know, entering middle school and high school, respectively, it opened up the opportunity to get involved in a really important and meaningful way. Right. Like, I really believe that working through the opportunity that presented itself 
with the type of grassroots enthusiasm around Bernie Sanders was a real opportunity to engage people in politics in a way we haven't seen in quite some time. You know, we had already seen the explosion of the Black Lives Matters movement, right? It was really awakening something in people all over the country and with the various movements and offshoots and organizations. We've seen Million Hoodies formed, um, um, Dream Defenders, so many different organizations, uh, uh, you, you know, Sada's Daughters, all over the place. We see people really taking control themselves. So electorally, I thought this was the same type of opportunity to really engage underrepresented and marginalized communities. You know, we're talking about political revolution. Like, it was exciting. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, but it, it's still rhetoric, but it was exciting and it, it presented a challenge and opportunity. What I didn't count on was the fact that, you know, being someplace we had just moved to Georgia. We had been in Georgia almost a year at the time, not having my own community really to kind of leverage and be able to do that with. So that's been, you know, the past few years for me has been finding my own community and political home here locally that I think we all need to think about when we're, we're, we're like, yeah, let's get out there and spread the good word. If you don't have that base locally, it makes it a little bit more difficult to really get out there and leverage on behalf of candidates that you're, you're supporting. Mm-hmm. But that's what the digital campaigning is, is, is easier in some ways because you could still make a difference and engage and build community. You know, we were helping to write talking points and, you know, with the research team uh, for women for, for, for Bernie, we had researched several different issues and came down. We had this big research doc that we developed and then we condensed it down to like, you know, talking points for our page, for, for people who are, who are page admins, for people who are going to write stuff on our behalf, just all types of stuff, right? Because we wanted to contribute to the conversation, particularly, you know, when we think about how the media blackout was working and we saw this independent media space growing in some ways too around covering his campaign and the grassroots activism around it. So that was really exciting me to think of that. It was also really interesting, the pushback, you know, like I did one interview for Women for Bernie one time and um, it ended up really being more of a debate. It was on the Canadian broadcast channel. It was an early morning show. And the other woman was an older, I presumably white woman, who was a volunteer for Hillary out of Maryland. She's a stay-at-home mother. She was a housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was very condescending, you know? And it really was, I think someone actually wrote an article and then uh, used that uh, clip in it to talk about the, the clash between, like, you know, newer third wave fem- feminists, which I was supposed to represent in their art, their piece and like that, that older, you know, bra burning guard. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, that was interesting going through all that. And when you're in the middle of the primary, you're trying to, you know, build space. And then we had to deal with how do you actually make the case to black people? And what we found, if there was actually the investment in outreach and engaging, you know, black, black voters, that people would get excited when they learned about him or learned about what he was standing for in comparison to other candidates, right? Because I remember when we, you know, we were on the West, the people would ask us like, oh my God, dude, where did you get this from? Do you have more Bernie buttons? Do you have more signs? Like um, it, it was, it was, so, so the interest was there. It just wasn't, you know, the same investment and like not saying that he was going to come in and sweep the South in the primary, but you know, there were people all across the board who were interested in connecting with the campaign that just never happened. And I definitely think that in looking at things going forward, if he is to run again, or whoever the heir apparent would be to his mantle is to run, that real connection to people needs to be built now. 
And, and he actually had some really meaningful relationships all across the country with people of color, with black people in particular, that just weren't leveraged effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and part of my growing observation and frustration, I just felt like the core team, like, uh, you know, Tad Devine and Jeff Weaver, um, just were not, um, they're used to running his campaigns in Vermont, right? So I don't think they understood how to build not only that diverse coalition necessary to win or to at least make a strong showing, but I don't know that they really understood about how to run a grassroots campaign. Because when you think about that was a political insurgency. You know, you're running up against the most formidable political machine in the past 50 years, approximately. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you might say in terms of the the, the Democrats, you know, the Kennedy family might be an equal comparison. You know, on the other side, you'd have like the Bushes. Right. But the Clintons have been deeply involved in politics for the last 40 plus years. They pretty much have either hired or introduced everybody and a mama to their spouses or exes or whatever. You know, (laughs) So like there's this huge, deep relationship. And I don't think that his campaign really leveraged. You know, I was I was surprised when I stumbled upon I think someone had sent it to one of the pages I helped run when I stumbled upon this video of black elders from California, they did, they did a round table on their own. And when I'm talking about elders, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm guesstimating that these were black people over 60. And, you know, that was the older black votes. That was a, a block he had a hard time connecting. But when you have people who are not only familiar with him, some of them had worked with him previously in different, different things over the years. So, you know, there are people out there that had relationships with him that just weren't leveraged properly in this political process. And maybe it's because that's just not how he works as a person. So it didn't translate well to campaign strategy. I really don't know. But I do know, like, just thinking about some of the things that happened during the campaign, it was very frustrating. Like, they were so conscientious and concerned about someone like a DeRay who wasn't going to support them, who wasn't mm-hmm. going to do anything to help them, that they would, you know, kind of, you know, chastise someone like myself and and my my, my co-admin, Yamina Rowland, over the term black burner, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so Yamina came up with the term black burner because people who were Bernie supporters were referring to themselves as burners. So Yamina was like, well, I'm a black burner. We have a page on Facebook called Black Burner Coalition. She would use the hashtag. We have been using the hashtag forever. I think Stacy and a couple other folks started, you know, using it too. It wasn't like it was a real big deal. One of my paying attention to us. All of a sudden, someone got a hold of an email that was sent out on my behalf here locally because we were trying to have a conference call about African-American and Latino outreach collectively, right, um, here in Georgia, Atlanta in particular, and somehow that got posted on social media and it got, DeRay got tweeted about it. And, you know, him being the person he is, instead of looking at the person's name on it, instead of asking the question, because he proved in subsequent tweets within 10 minutes of each other that he was able to get someone high up enough on the campaign and apparently Dr. West from his tweets on the phone to clarify, he didn't have to do handle things the way he did. Hmm. And that ended up causing a ton of stress and drama for myself and Yamina, including the campaign apparently asking, I think it was Atlanta for Bernie who sent out the, 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 the email for us, including the campaign asking them to please cease and desist use of the term. And they, you know, they directed it to me and I was just like, no, why would I do that? I don't have to listen to them because they were so worried about the backlash. So you had a bunch of Hillary supporters like really up in arms. And it's just like, y'all don't have a comparable term if two black women are comfortable using it and saying it, I mean, and I understand that some folks might not like it. That's fine, too. But it was just it was just unnecessarily dramatic. And we saw things like that happening. Right. There's this false outrage connected around him. 
And I think that a lot of us who would be more inclined to criticize and to be analytical about issues weren't because we were also combating that stuff. Mm. Right. So, but, but, but Ben and I came to a point in our own like commentary where we were just like, we have to kind of challenge and push back because there are so many missed opportunities happening here. And whether we're talking about education, because, because Bernie would have stuff like in like a, you know, when they have to do those those surveys for the for if they're going to get endorsed by a union or organization, mm-hmm. he would have some really great language, but it was nothing that was worked into his campaign spiel. Right. I was going to say there was it seemed to be it seemed to me that there was a great disconnect between what people were doing on the ground and then what was being channeled through Bernie to the larger public. Right. Right. Um, the other thing I'm curious, why, why were people upset about the term black burner? What was, what was like, I, I, I missed really this controversy. No, I really think it was like, oh, it was a whole big deal because even so Marcus, who was African-American outreach director, like Yamina and I tracked down his contact information. We had heard him speak. I had heard him speak on a conference call. We tracked down his conference, his, his information. And we were like, we're here. We're grassroots side. We want to help whatever we can do. And he got so much flat when that happened. He actually stopped talking to us for a little bit. And, you know, you know, he and I are really close friends now. But mm-hmm. I told him, I was like, yo, like, I was really bad. And he was like, I know. He's like, because everybody was really worried because DeRay, you know, has a big platform on Twitter. <laughs> and it became this whole big thing. And I don't, I don't, there wasn't really actually a good reason. Like, people were just upset. People who were pro-Hillary were just upset. And they made it into a really big thing that it wasn't. Like it, it is like even the email they were sharing around very clearly said what it was, who it was from and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was just so, the most ridiculous thing. But it stands out. It's actually the reason why I, I don't like Blue Vest now. Um, I mean, it's not the only reason, but it's a big part of the reason why I can't stand Blue Vest mm-hmm. because I think he's petty and opportunistic. But that's a whole other story. But but again, like like they were they were so at least. Whether they thought they were going to get his support or not, I don't know. But they were at least hoping that they wouldn't anger him, I guess, right? Because he is such a large influencer. And that is really pro- that's a real problem with our politics. We have people who are not really actually engaged for all of our collective improvement. And they're engaged for their own, whatever their own personal reasons are. But they hold such sway over, you know, opinion and, and for some of these candidates. So it was really interesting. But like when we would read stuff, like we would do research, we would read stuff. I'm like, this is great. Why isn't he working this part of like K through 12 education? Like he was talking about, you know, inequity in in school, public school funding, like in different written things that, Mm -hmm. that were out there that we would find. I'm like, he needs to be working this in. Like this is like really great stuff that directly affects our communities. And it wasn't being talked about. It wasn't a part of the shtick, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was very like linear. It was very stuck on a few, the break up the big banks. You know, he had some really great zingers, but they didn't resonate. You know, we weren't breaking it down and connecting to people with why this stuff mattered. And that's something that I still challenge folks on. When we're saying we need campaign finance reform, when we're saying break up the big banks, all that stuff, how, what, I, I get that it's, I understand, you understand that it's the right thing to say or do. But how do we relate this to the average person, to the brother or sister on the block, you know, to somebody in the holler? How do we relate this to their lives that it moves them? Because mm-hmm. from what, from my understanding, that's not going to help me eat. Like, from my right. understanding, that's not going to help me get a job if I don't understand the connectedness, right? So that was one of, that's been one of my consistent critiques with folks 
who are progressives who are engaging this political space. It's so wonderful that so many of us, you know, came to this and are really enthused and engaged and stuff. But there's so many more people who have been like disenchanted and disaffected with the process. We have to find a way to reach and communicate people and help them understand why this even matters. And there are those who argue who may argue that it doesn't matter. And that's fine, too. But we have to do better. Uh-huh. And it's not enough to just say Bernie is Bernie's going to save us all. And that type of stuff just started to irritate me after a while, because when you having having lived in, you know, living now and, and working in the South and then to see kind of the attitude like we weren't trying to compete in, you know, in, in Florida, we weren't trying to do this. And just knowing the people, getting to know the people on the ground who were working really hard and learning the stories and hearing the anecdotes, right? Anecdotes are not proven fact, but they actually are useful in understanding what the potential is. And we have to invest in the potential to expand progressive politics, particularly here in the South, because it is possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does resonate. Well, I mean, no tea, no shade, but next time you guys come up with a phrase like Black Burner, as long as you get Doritos to sponsor you guys, <laughs> I think that uh, someone will come on board and be all about it. Uh, <laughs> but I did want to say also, um, just thinking about some of the things you mentioned, right? Uh, connecting more with the grassroots, um, making a greater effort to connect the dots between rhetoric and what's going on on the ground. Are there any other things that you would want to see Bernie do potentially considering that he's going to run in 2020. I mean, it definitely looks like he will. Um, So like, what do you think he, if, if he runs in 2020, what do you think he should do um, more specifically to connect perhaps with black Southern voters or voters period in the South? Um, And then secondly, I would ask uh, for you, would you be willing to support him in 2020 as vocally as you did in 2016? (laughs) And if so, what would it take for you to put your name on that list as a, supporter again um so I learned a lot right because like I said again I've always voted um which is interesting we can get into this later um I'm different from my parents in that respect because you know the the generation while I'm not as different from my parents as the king boys are from from MLK (laughs) I am a little bit different from my parents because you know you grow up with people you know you grow up in struggle you grow up in spaces and then you start to see the world on your own and then you, you got to kind of fumble through it and, and figure it out for yourself. Right. And my mom actually like kind of smiles to her, smiles, not just to herself, but she's really loud and public about it now because she sees me. They see me coming more back towards them now as I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I, maybe that's a part of just like kids and rebelling against our parents. Right. right. You know, you, if you have super radical leftist, you know, really political parents and then you kind of go the opposite direction to kind of be different, maybe maybe I don't know. But um, but but thinking about what needs to be done better. I mean, I, I, I saw that I see that he's having an economic um, inequality town hall to follow up on the Medicare for all one. I see that he has a black economist speaking, which I think will be excellent. I think that Bernie Sanders needs to surround himself with people who actually understand how to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky because there aren't really that many people probably in politics who understand what it is to run an insurgency. I mean, even when you look at the folks that came out of OFA, those were still kind of institutional political types. But that model um, is still, you know, crucial to when we're thinking about, you know, success on the grassroots success on a national level. But I think in terms of the issues, I mean, he has to be able to come off the farm a bit, right? Like, he can't be so wedded to those few topic things. You got to get comfortable. Like, when I saw, when I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but when he went to Baltimore, right, and he spoke, 
and he was walking through Freddie Gray's neighborhood and he was they he, they were talking to him about food deserts and like he seemed really and I'm not you know I really believe he was genuinely concerned and he was you know really open and expressing like wow I can't imagine not having a supermarket there was no follow up uh-huh. there was like nothing until after it was time for them to show up in Maryland 4 weeks before the election like that type of stuff can't happen anymore right you can't just show up Like, I think I hope Democrats in general and even third party candidates, I hope folks understand you literally can't just show up and expect people to vote for you because you you write on the issues like that's just not how humans are wired. Some of us might be wired that way, but the masses are not. And we need the masses to turn out to be able to overcome these institutional candidates. And so would I support him in 2020? I might vote for him in 2020. We'll see. Um, am I going to put it on the line and go hard and be working for free like I did in 2016? <laughs> no. No, 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 no. I am I am I am not I am not necessarily, you know, vote everybody black just because they black, but at the same time, I am really interested in seeing more of us exercise and leverage our ability to secure compensation for the work and labor that we do. Mm-hmm. So I think that if I'm going to be working for free doing anything, my voice is best spent, you know, as it has been, you know, more more recently in the past year or so on the outside, educating, elevating and, and, and pushing on the issues similar to what you do through your own work as well. Like I'm not opposed to, you know, publicly supporting him during a primary process if he's to run. But um, I, I would really hope that there are a lot of lessons. And it seems like there are some lessons learned. I mean, he he did get it right this time and endorsed the the, the, the pro-choice candidate, not the anti-choice <laughs> one. Le- um, you're talking about Lipinski, right? This very yes, recent one with uh, Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but um, but but it's, it's interesting watching the evolution of a politician, particularly one that has is, is of the age he is and is. Is, is has been doing this for so long but he's he's still good on so many issues right so it's definitely a possibility but i just really hope that in terms of staffing in terms of the campaign that some of the critiques and criticisms that have been raised that he's really listening i would like to see between now and 2020 though a real concerted effort effort and i think our revolution is trending this way a real concerted effort to help build up that grassroots base of support because people are running shadow campaigns basically to help get progressives elected. Mm -hmm. And we really need to see more of an investment in in, in political education because I mean, I'm all for the everyday average person to get involved, but we need to also be more uh, uh, educated about whether it's campaign finance, organization formation. Because one thing you and I see online is there are a lot of people who have formed opinions and stuff that unfortunately are malinformed or misinformed or uninformed whatever the case may be and that they'll, they'll, they build such a strong opposition to something it's like do you even understand what you're opposing and why mm-hmm. like like the biggest thing for me has been the issue over like 501c4s right like yes 501c4s are a tax identification or organizational formation that can be abused. The fact that something can be abused doesn't automatically make it bad. It does mean that we need to hold people accountable and demand that there are, you know, guidelines and stuff put in place. If we're going to say progressives are going to leverage and use the tools that are available to us, then we need to hold people accountable to that. That's absolutely true. But just the simple fact that it exists or that you're a affiliated one does not automatically make you you know the new evil so so it's interesting and thinking about that stuff going forward but i can't say right now i'm not necessarily a fan of burning 2020 personally i really do think that this time should have been built instead of expanding his you know level 
to really develop a cadre of leaders to come after him. I'm not an ageist, but let's just keep it all the way funky. Bernie's approaching 80 years old. This is the biggest folly, I think, coming out of the civil rights movement and in the black power generation was that we didn't have a, a cadre of leadership Probably also because that's a little different because they struck down our leaders so young, right, right. but we didn't have folks ready to step into those shoes on that same level, right? Because we were so busy building around specific individuals. And I think we really need to learn the lessons of the past 50 some odd years and, and trend away from that mm-hmm. um, and, and really start developing, you know, full benches, so to speak. So speaking of, you know, developing and kind of building out uh, politically, you yourself have been involved in doing some political coverage, I've noticed, in Georgia um, in particular. And I know you said you don't want to work for free anymore for something you don't feel like is worth it, but I assume that you're working for free on this particular project, and I would also assume that it is very much worth it. So can you talk a bit about your work that you've been doing um, in terms of covering politics in Georgia? Talk about that project and also um, what you're seeing happening on the ground in Georgia politically because I remember for a while people were talking about Georgia as a potential purple state um, but over uh-huh. the past elections we saw that it went for Hillary Clinton in the primary of uh, who's the more conservative of the two Democrats and then mm. went for Trump if I'm not mistaken correct uh, for did. the 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 election the general election right so right right what's going on in Georgia well Georgia has been trending blue so to speak right Georgia has been within like five percentage points since 2008. So 2008, 2012, 2016, Georgia was within five percentage points. And I think actually 2008 and 2016 were the same exact. It was 5.2% difference between the Democrat and Republican votes. But so it was a lot closer compared to other, I think, you know, red leaning states, right? And there's so much hope in how to close that gap. And can Georgia actually turn, you know, purple or will it turn blue, whatever. And I mean, I certainly think that there is something to that if Democrats are willing to embrace a strategy um, similar to what we saw kind of be forced to happen in Alabama. And I say that it was forced because, you know, Doug Doug Jones's win was in spite of him and his campaign, not necessarily (laughs) because of him and his campaign. Right. Definitely. And I mean, and we see this happening all over the place. We see, you know, there's a lot of hype put on, you know, black women and the black vote and things like that. But I really do think there's something to be said about the to steal the term the new majority right like there we do have you have your liberal and your progressive white voters you do have your your black and we do have a growing latino population here in georgia as well you know when you look at the 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 voter demographics here i think it's like between 30 and 40 percent of registered voters it's like 30 and 40 percent of registered voters are black here in the state Mm -hmm. right and then like which is a high percentage compared to other states and then also um you have, when you're talking about Democratic voters, you know, Democratic voters here in the state are predominantly black and they're predominantly black women. So, so there, there is a, there is a, a, a base that exists, whether or not we're willing to invest in that base and grow it and nurture it and really turn out that vote. That's the conversation we're having nationwide too, though, when we're talking about kind of Democrats as we look at the two major parties, right? Um, but, but the same criticism I have for Democrats, I have for third party folks too. Because if you're trying to do something, you're trying to grow and you're trying to to overturn a trend in how people have been voting or how people have been supporting, you have to invest whether you have the money or you have just the the actual resources in terms of people power to engage people and build support and and help people kind of trend your way. I like what the Baltimore Greens and Maryland Greens, I think overall, have been doing and really trying to build up that support and really build connection with community. I think 
Um, folks in Colorado have also been trying to do something similar. Here in Georgia with, with, with the Democrats, you know, there's still that divide. You still have the old guard that thinks we have to try really hard to win back the lost white voters mm-hmm. that kind of trended away from, um, you know, Democrats, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But and then you have those who are like, hey, we have this we have this block that we have. We need to nurture it. We need to turn it out. We need to develop it. And 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 if we're able, if we stick to the issues, right, if we actually stick to the issues, we actually stand for something. Some of those other voters might come back to us because they're tired of being shafted on mm-hmm. the on on health care, on education, on infrastructure, on jobs. Right. Because like we're here in Georgia, we don't have Medicaid expansion. Um, there have been rural hospital closures. I think you saw my tweets about the 14 hours I spent in the hospital with my sister, who we live in a city, but she also doesn't have health insurance. So it's a similar you know, issue, whether you're living in rural Georgia or you're living in, in, in an urban area in Georgia in terms of health care access, whether you have you might have like community health centers or hospitals in your community. But if you can't afford to go there, you know, what I'm saying you're not getting the care. If you don't have them in your community and you have to travel several, you know, a couple of hours to get someplace, that's a problem, too. So there are similar issues, I think, that can unite people that we really need to be standing strong on and not trying to kind of trend to the middle or, or lean right to, 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 to see if we can win that vote back. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, so here in Georgia, because because t- I've been telling everybody for what, two years now. Um, you know, get local, get local, get local. Everybody got to get local. And I like my daughter called me out, told me I was a hypocrite. <laughs> um, my 16 year old was like, you always be telling people that they need to be getting involved locally, but you spend all your time doing stuff nationally. And one of the first things I was able to do that was really, and that's the first thing, but one of the things I was able to do that really was important to me locally was, um, even though I was, I was supposed to be in DC, uh, at an event, but instead I stayed here and I got to speak in front of the national lawyers guild. They do a orientation for law students called disorientation, right? And they bring in, you know, progressive lawyers and stuff to kind of talk to the students. I don't practice in the same way traditionally lawyers do. I'm a, I'm a licensed lawyer, but my, my actual lawyer work is not exciting. It's not the exciting traditional lawyer work you think of. But I was really excited to come in and speak, though, because of my activism and my involvement in independent media. And I got to talk about free speech absolutism and how free speech absolutism, it is it is a, a, a argument for privileged, predominantly white folks, usually those with money, to make and that marginalized communities, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't rely on that because this whole notion that if we protect the free speech of some racist, you know, right wing, you know, extremists that somehow that's protecting our speech too. They get access to platforms, they get access to spaces that we don't even get. So we're not even in the same space. And if somebody is on a medium complaining about how their free speech is being threatened, their free speech is not being really threatened, right? right. They're not targeted because they. So so it's been really interesting in thinking locally here. I, I recently joined our DSA chapter um, not too long ago. A, a, a friend that I, I made here, um, Aaron Parks, is on the board of our Metro Atlanta DSA MATSA. And, you know, I had already known a lot of really cool folks. And I'm like, yeah, 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 join DSA. And I had been saying I was going to do it. I've been saying I was going to do it. I was saying I was going to go to a meeting. And finally, Aaron twisted my arm because she actually came up to New York for the AfroSoch training weekend that they had. And she really wanted to start implementing activities and stuff here. So she hit me up. And finally, I was like, you know, it's kind of a hypocrite, use my daughter's word, to 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 start planning and doing activities with with Aaron under their banner and under the AfroSoch, you know, banner and not actually be involved and be in the space as well. So I went ahead and joined DSA. And, and that was my first meeting. Everyone was like, tell us about your first meeting. The first meeting was good. 
But we have this this race that's happening, right, for governor. Uh, when I first moved here, it was in 2014, and I just voted for whoever the person was. My dad and I went and voted at a historic black church, which was very interesting. And we, you know, thinking about what's happening now. So, yes, we have the, we have the Battle of the Stacys. Oh, that sounds so dramatic. Wait, 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 wait. Back up, back up. There are two people running. So just to clarify, on the Democratic side, there are two women running for governor who cleared part of the primaries, right? And they're both named Stacy, or are they still... Is there still the a primary our primary our primary is still going on. Okay. Um, primary is in May. This week was qualifying week. They both qualified. They both, you know, pay their fee. They both qualified to be on the ballot. And that's a whole other conversation about you got to pay to qualify to run for office, right? And for and some wait, people. Do you know how much that fee is? I don't know what I don't know what the fee off the top of my head is for governor. I know for like there's someone trying to they're, they're trying to hurry up and raise money for someone to run for agricultural commissioner. And I know that fee is like $3,400. Oh, and that's, wow. just a, that's a statewide race as well. Wow. Um, so, I'm, so I'm not sure exactly what the fee is for governor, but both women, you know, um, you know, qualified this week. So yes, they're both named Stacy. They're both. It's like white um, Stacy and black Stacy is how I've been referring <laughs> to them, but I know they have last names. So one is Stacy Abrams, one right? One is Stacy Abrams and the other is Stacy Evans. They're both lawyers. They're, they both grew up in, in, in poor rural families. Um, they both had very compelling stories. So it's been really interesting. So I actually kind of stayed away from discussing the race for quite some time because, as you may know, or you probably remember, back in August during NetRoots, um, I was a part of the group. I helped lead the group, actually, that interrupted Stacey Evans when she spoke. Mm. And that was a lot of backlash. That was a, that was a really interesting thing. So I kind of like... Because of the way the media, like I learned a lot from the episode, that incident. So like if you're ever doing a direct action, make sure you have your presser, make sure you have your personal, your statement, your group statement ready to go. Because at least you can point to that um, because everybody, they'll, they'll misconstrue, they would twist your actions and your words around and it'll be a mess. And so for a long time, like I didn't really want to comment necessarily on the candidates because I just kind of like got stung a little bit because of how badly whether it was, the, it was the Washington Post piece and there were there was like two two or three local pieces, they completely just butchered and mismatched why it happened. And they, they latched onto the fact that we at the end we started chanting trust black women. And and now you see everyone uses that hashtag, right? Mm-hmm. And so we started you know chanting trust black women, not because we were saying that you need to trust and support Stacey Abrams, who had spoken like earlier in, in the Netroots weekend, but that you need to trust us, those of us who were there like that morning you know, there was also like an education conversation being led by black women, like black women have been at the forefront of so many different movements. And if we're saying to you, like, hold up, you guys need to be thinking about who you let on the stage and brand as a progressive. And part of the issue, too, was she was speaking ahead of the NEA vice president. And, um, and what's the I NEA? The, the uh, National Education Association. Mm-hmm. And um, part of the issue was there is a bill here that she that Evans supported that you know, all the teachers groups fought against, right? Like she, she crossed lines away from the Democratic caucus and voted with the Republicans for this particular bill, a bill that actually didn't even ultimately, um, it was opportunity school districts and to basically take away, uh, basically take school districts under state control. And it actually didn't even affect the district she represented either. Right. So she went against the, the actual Dem caucus and, 
And that is a t- cause of tension. So when she started running, when Evan started running, her biggest thing has been the Hope Scholarship Program. You know, some states have programs where if kids do, you know, whatever the bench hold is, then they'll, they'll give them some form of assistance, right? And that program was being gutted or possibly on a chopping block, I think back in like 2011 or so. Um, and Stacey Abrams, who was the House Minority Leader, Black Stacey, um, she did some negotiating and stuff and it, and it left a sour taste in some people's mouth about how she did it. And this is a source of um, real uh, contention for a lot of folks over whether to support her over this hope project. But she worked with the governor, governor, Republican governor and, and negotiated a deal to, to, to from her standpoint to save it. Right. Mm-hmm. And my position has always been it's fine. Criticize her on hope if that's what you're going to criticize her on. But let's make education. Let's put it all out on the table. And that's what we were trying to illustrate at that time. And we thought it was just insult to have, you know, Evan speak on the same stage as the NEA vice president, which is a group that, you know, did not support that that action. But also, um, you know, it was also like a weird signaling to have her speak the same time, you know, ahead of Elizabeth Warren. Stacey Abrams, on the other hand, spoke on the same night with all the black people. Hmm. Right. Uh-huh. Spoke on the same night with uh, Barbara Lee, uh, who was on, you know, if you guys look at my Twitter profile, pic- Twitter picture, you know, Barbara Lee sat on the panel. We had Barbara Lee on the panel with us during that roots. We talked about black, black people in progressive spaces and progressive while black. But it was, it was, it was just really, it was so much that went into it. Right. And we talked about some of her other education folks. So if we're going to make education like the issue, because they were only trying to spoke on, on this one little sub issue. We need to make it the issue and talk about it. So and, and until recently, no one else had really ever challenged her on her education vote record and stuff like that. And really, no one challenges her across this whole race. So some folks are like, well, why don't you challenge Abrams? I, I did recently in the piece that I just wrote about their the BDS vote back in 2000, uh, March, I think it was March of 2016. They both there was an anti BDS bill that came through the Georgia legislature. Um, Stacey Abrams, Black Stacey voted against it. White Stacey voted for it. So wait, it's, let me let me back up. It was an anti BDS bill. So yeah, what were what were the? Can you go into a little bit of detail about what the bill was proposing to do and why Abrams was against it? But it seems like Evans voted for it. She did vote for it. So um, and and, and that's why I like and with the piece I characterize because it's being made out like somehow Abrams is the anomaly and is anti you know Jewish anti Israel for her vote. When really uh, a, a major portion of, you know, Democrats who were in the House voting at the time voted against it, as well as most of the sitting. I think everyone except for one person who was a part of the Democratic leadership voted against it. Right. Mm-hmm. So the bill, I mean, it's, it's similar to the other ones that have been peddled around the country that would penalize, you know, folks who were engaging in, um, you know, the, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement um, in, in various forms. And part of her rationale, even though what was bothersome for me personally is because she's getting challenged on it now. And we've seen how the issue of being, I don't know, soft on Israel, the topic is the best way I can think of it, how it can be used against black candidates. Right. Mm -hmm. So we saw what happened to Donna Edwards. We saw what happened with um, Dwight Bullard down in Florida as well. And you know, just to, seen... to clarify for people listening, Dwight Bullard and um, Donna Edwards were both running for office and they had supported BDS in some, even, not even so, they were, not, just, like, they were, just, they were just, just a little bit. <laughs> right? Better on Palestinian issues, you know, they, like, they had like issues about Palestinian human rights. Mm-hmm. I think Dwight Bullard had actually went with 
it was I think it was actually a Dream Defenders group, I think. And it was a group of young activists that he went with and they went to they were in, you know, Gaza, I think uh-huh. it was while they were there. And that resulted in massive backlash when he was running for office and they tanked him, you know, in his effort. And then he ultimately his seat was ultimately lost to a Republican, like like in the Florida legislature, they lost the seat to a Republican over this. Uh-huh. This is how. And then, you know, Donna Edwards lost. Haim Saban dropped a hundred thousand dollars or more, I think, in the race against ten thousand, ten thousand dollars for was it ten thousand. Yeah, yeah I, but it was, it was a local a, race, so ten thousand dollars in a local race might as well be a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I knew, I knew he dropped some sum with some zeros in it. Yeah, um, and she was running against Van Holland, like right. he's like against her because you know Israel is his issue. So, but 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 Abrams said at the time and she has said reiterated that her commitment to freedom of speech i mean this is actually when i when i finally got to meet her this is actually what she said to me too about our protest even though she didn't necessarily agree with our protest she understands you know young people and activism and freedom of speech and and i respect that and appreciate that so even though i don't agree with her on her statement and her affinity for israel at the, the extent that it is I do appreciate the fact that she recognized that um, having this type of curtail, not just on freedom of speech, when we're thinking about these BDS, these anti-BDS bills, they're really a restriction on, um, you know, right to protest, Uh right? Right to assembly, you know, and, 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 and there's another effort I see getting pushed through the Senate now on the U S Senate now, but, 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 so that's what she talked about. She talked about how this could be used against, you know, other forms of protest and, and, and we can't just, you know, limit it this way. And we, we can't restrict people's speech in this way. And we can't restrict people's right to protest. And that's basically what she has stuck to. And I think that when you're within, you know, the candidates, there is no perfect candidate. We are going to find candidates we don't agree with. You know, we're going to find candidates who don't go as far as we want them to on issues. But I do think that, you know, what I've seen of her and her her campaign um, and her ability to think about the broader context of issues beyond what she personally feels, because she wrote this long medium post talking about her affinity for Israel and all this stuff and basically trying to calm people down here um, who were getting annoyed. The Atlanta Jewish Times has had like, I think, three different pieces. There actually was one letter that was or two letters that were published um, for people who were supportive, saying that that the the articles attacking her over the vote were divisive and recognizing why she voted the way she did, but they were like three op-ed pieces attacking her as not being you know strong enough on Israel or not a real. And it's just like this is a state level race. Why mm-hmm. does that matter? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's and it's interesting that it, you know, we talk a lot about interference from Russia, um, and yes. now we're starting to expand the discussion to talk about Saudi and potential like. Qatari interference Mm -hmm. but it's it's kind of the elephant in the room that we never talk so much at least in the mainstream media about really blatant interference by people who like uh who work with APAC or people who have focused entirely on Israel and I know in the case of Haim Saban he's literally said like he he's not even a partisan it's basically his partisanship is based on who supports Israel in his mind and who doesn't um so I think that that is something that obviously uh, needs to be more closely examined and discussed, um, and not in a way, obviously, that's anti-Semitic. I mean, I don't think it even goes there. I think just looking at Israel as a country and looking at the way those who advocate on Israel's behalf within the United States do have a pretty, um, they go really deep. If, if you're doing right. local elections, city council even, I've seen, um, then that's a problem. Right, right. <laughs> right. So. And when we're looking at, when we're looking at even the comments right now, right? Like we're looking at the whole battle right now over the Farrakhan stuff, right. but you have Chuck Schumer 
who is, you know, the ranking them in, in the Senate and making comments talking about the Torah and how those people don't believe in the, what the Torah says. And, I mean, he just really ran up on like anti-Arab Islamophobic type statements to be able to. It's just like, how can we trust you as a quote unquote ally? Like, like when you're making statements and commentary in this type of venue in that way. And it's just like, it's, I understand. I understand the concern over anti-Semitism. Why? Because I'm a black person living in America. Trust and believe. I understand what it is to be in a marginalized group. I understand that there are people out there who hate you just for existing because of, you know, you know, certain characteristics that are different and who want to really undermine, destroy your very existence. Like, yo, I get that. But at the same time, the fact that, you know, basically we're being told that we can't critique a system of government. Right. Because that's what it is like. And I agree with you. If it if the critique and if people's commentary is venturing into the area of being anti-Semitic and stuff, that definitely needs to be addressed and and, and, and and resolved. Like head up, because we can't we can't tolerate that. Just like we can't tolerate anti-blackness, discriminatory statements in any other setting, we can't tolerate that either. But at the same time, a lot of things are being labeled anti-Semitic. Like like one thing that I disagreed with Abrams about, you know, in my piece was. You know, labeling the entire BDS movement anti-Semitic. Right, and it's like, not at all. But yeah. BDS, like I point to Jewish Voices of Peace, Jewish Voices for Peace, and the American Friends Movement, American Friends Service Committee, which my stepdad worked for. Um, those are two, you know, groups that are a part of the BDS movement, and and their approaches, their strategy, just everything about them is so far from being anti-Semitic. The BDS movement is like, people are, are whispering about how she get the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's so much more to it than just appeasing the sensibility of particular interests. And we gotta be aware of that. And I can support a candidate. We all can support a candidate and still address the issues we have with the way they're making moves or politics and still be true to ourselves. Cause that's something that's, since I, like I got asked recently in an interview if I'm a Democrat and I'm like, I vote Democrat, right? Um, I think a lot of us may, at times, if we do vote, vote Democrat. I have voted third party maybe like twice. Um, I'm gonna keep it real. I voted for Jill Stein, mm-hmm. not because I like Jill Stein. I got issues with Jill Stein, but I voted for Jill Stein because you know I had some folks who were Georgia Greens who were like, "Oh, just vote. We need people to vote for us. So we get that five percent." I was like, "All right, I'm gonna vote for you." And like, if y'all don't get it, I don't want to hear it no more. <laughs> like, I did my part. And so, you know, I mean, but like I have voted Democrat, but I don't I, that's not a part of my identity. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I don't I'm not so like wedded to the party and the party line. I really think that we need to think outside the box on party. So I consider myself more of an independent voter in that respect. But at the same time, like, I really think that when we're thinking about our politics, you know, what we the choices. And, and I think you and I might have had this discussion about Angela Davis during the, the election, right? Angela Davis is probably, you know, of our elders who are still existing and able to tell their stories and stuff is, is one of the most, is, is, is on that radical spectrum, right? She, mm-hmm. she, she, Very she, far, she actually. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Yeah. When she started talking that political pragmatism, that really broke people's brains. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And, but, I, but I, but I understand, you know, kind of where she's coming from because we, we still exist no matter how much we're about to dismantle the system and deconstruct spaces, we still exist in within these systems. And I refuse to cede ground to folks 
in matters that directly affect my life, the life of my children, the life of my family. So it's it's a weird balance. It's a really weird balance. And, 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 and I don't know if my strategy is, is the right one, but it's the one that I'm comfortable taking for now. Yeah. I was going to ask you as well, because you mentioned, um, you know, some people that you, you don't agree with 100%, but that you vote for because you're thinking in more of a, in more pragmatic terms, or even like in the case of Jill Stein, you're thinking in terms of ways to help forward third party politics and progressive politics in a direction that perhaps at least interrupts the control that the Democrats have over quote unquote left politics on the national spectrum. Uh, So speaking of problematic people, or perhaps people that rub other people the wrong way, but that we agree with a little bit on things, Imani Gandhi. Can you please <laughs> can you please talk about this Imani Gandhi interview? So for those who don't know, um, Anoa actually recently interviewed Imani Gandhi for her podcast, which you should all listen to. Um, it's a really interesting interview. And Imani Gandhi, I have, I have to explain so much because I have to remember that not everyone's on Twitter as much as we are and may not know any of these people that we're talking about. Um, so Imani Gandhi is a reproductive rights activist. She was formerly an attorney, um, and now she does more advocacy work and writing on reproductive rights. Um, and she's a black woman. She literally goes by the handle angry black lady on Twitter. Um, so you recently interviewed her. Now she's quite polemic in terms of her position with progressives online. Um, she's known for being rather frank, uh, (laughs) online. And I think pissing some people off, but at the same time, there has been a lot of anger geared towards her. Um, some of the things about her work past and her, so what seems like support of Hillary Clinton, but what she worded was less about supporting Hillary Clinton and more about being like rejecting Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really curious about, first of all, what compelled you to interview her, especially considering all the drama that uh, the dust that had been stirred up around her presence online. And then secondly, can you talk a bit about the aftermath? Because I too was caught up in the aftermath of it because I agreed with her on I some point. I was so surprised that people came for you that yeah. way though. So I'm curious like how you dealt with it, why you chose to interview her, how you dealt with the backlash, and then kind of where you see this space or what, what you learned from that process in terms of what it means to be a black woman and alternative and new left media and perhaps the limitations for us versus I think some of our um, male peers in this mm-hmm, field. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what compelled me? Yo, I've actually wanted to have a conversation with her because I believe she was a real person, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> she's, cause I'm someone, I've been pissed by her, her tweets and stuff too. Right. But I've read her articles, you know? Like, cause like uh, with Rewire, like I follow Rewire. She's a senior uh, uh, a writer with Rewire um, and, and her co-host for her podcast Jessica and I have been on interviews on Eugene Perrier's show by any means necessary before so I have a a, a general working relationship with her co-host so I'm like I've gotten to know Jessica I respect her a lot so I'm like if Jessica messes with with Imani like that (laughs) there has to be something else more to her and not that I believe another white a a white woman you know somebody needs the white sample validation or anything to to make them okay but at the same time like but getting to know the type of person Jessica is and what she stands for and what she values and then reading some of the pieces, like, cause I would find myself reading a piece from Rewire, like, oh my God, this is so good. And then I would read who wrote it and I'd be like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> share this. But then it's just like, you can't, there's some people like, 
like that's because I don't like her tweets doesn't mean I wouldn't share her articles. So I would share her articles, right? And some folks might not realize y'all was retweeting rewire artists for me, right. not even realizing who wrote it. Right. There are some people who I wouldn't retweet their stuff. I wouldn't share it if you know if they that was the last source of information on earth. You know, <laughs> but um, and I'm you know y'all could probably figure out who those people are, but. <laughs> But, 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 I had actually, too, but yeah. I had actually wanted to talk to her for quite some time because I just wanted to know just more about like her. Like I had questions, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't about trying to rehabilitate her or make her like, you know, I just I just want to have a conversation. Um, Because if people if you listen to my my, my show, I, I and, and, and this is why I don't like consider myself a journalist because I don't do interviews with people that I don't I very rarely have talked. I'm trying to think. I don't know that I can actually even think of a person that I talked to that I didn't want to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't talk to people I don't want to talk to. I don't really do the gotcha thing, you know, and I, I'm not like I'll debate. I have no problem debating, but I just don't do it on my show. Right. Mm-hmm. Like my space is a space for a conversation. And that's my tagline. Good people, you know, doing good, good conversation with good people doing good work. Now, whether you like and appreciate her work, that's a completely different story. And, you know, um, a, a couple of folks who I respect very much who have had interactions with, with other people of color, women of color, you know, I respected that we had conversations personally about it and how they felt about it and how they felt about me not directly challenging her in a few things. And you know what? I really appreciated that and I understand where people are coming from. And at the time, though, that wasn't my focus and my purpose. Like, I felt like if I at least get a rapport with her, that maybe she and I can have another conversation down the line about these things. Mm-hmm. But, like, when I when I when I agreed when what happened was she responded to one of my she responded to me defending her in a post in a tweet and I defended her in a tweet not because like oh my god like this is my fave she has a huge <laughs> following I need to I, I need to glow up on Twitter but because like something that was said I felt was so problematic like I can defend another black woman who is being, you know, her work is being debased and devalued without necessarily being her friend or supporter or whatever. Because I really think if folks can get all in their panties about bunched up about identity politics if they want to, but let's just be real here. Black women, you know what I'm saying? We do not get the same respect. We do not get the same, you know, space and platform as our white counterparts do in these progressive spaces. We don't. Liberal, Democrat, doesn't matter. We don't get it the same way. And so to see a discussion happen now, whether or not people agree or, or, or followed or paid attention to her, her, her back and forth, and, and she can be petty. And you know, I'm <laughs> that's that's an understatement, you know, but yes, she can be petty. She she will she will go ham. She goes from zero to fifty thousand. But that's her perspective. That's her space, and that's what she does. And she so told I, people right off the bat, right? Her tagline is, or her her username is literally "angry black lady." Angry black lady. So she's and letting so you know thing, right away. <laughs> right. And my thing is, I tend, and it's a lot of people though who are who are like this on Twitter. I don't go into other people's spaces and tell them how they need to use the space they've cultivated. I may not agree with them because a lot of times I'll subtweet her, right? Like a lot. And I told her this when we talked too. like, there were things I'm like, I said, yo, there are things you've, tw- you've tweeted that made me upset. Cause like, I think the most recent thing was, was when she retweeted that New York times article that had the, the tagline about uh, Trump supporters and steel ta- steel country or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the whole article with the exception of one person was all black folks who worked at this one steel mill in a district 
who had all voted for Hillary and Hillary had won the district. Like it was a misleading title and she didn't read the article and she admitted it too, that she didn't read the article like in a subsequent tweet or whatever. So instead of running up in her DMs in her, in her mentions about it, cause I don't do that. There's some people I'll do that too, but for the most part, I don't really run up in people's mentions all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I could be a mention thug too, but usually <laughs> that's not my thing. And so like, I remember like I've had people tweet her, or Feminista Jones is another one folks used to do this too during the campaign. I don't like that. I don't like when people will tweet other people into my timeline or mm-hmm. into my mentions. I think that's unnecessary conflict. Not that I have an issue with conflict, but why are you doing that? Like right. I'm having a con- and you do this a lot with your with your with your when you do um, when you do your Twitter commentary. Like it's like I'm informing on a point. Okay. Right. Like, I don't need to have a I don't need you to bring that person or their followers into my mention mm-hmm. on this issue. And it's really interesting in the way people like you and I use Twitter versus other folks sometimes, too. Right. So what happened, though, was like what I saw was and a lot of that stuff. There's been a lot of back and forth for her for a long time. And most of it I ignore. I disregard part of it because too, I'm not really interested in piling up with everybody else on another black woman. Whether uh-huh. I agree with her or not, I'm not really, I'm just not interested in that. I'm not really interested in a lot of the piling on that happens on Twitter, period. And actually, I have a lot of, um, I started muting words, phrases, and even people's Twitter handles. Like, yes, you can mute a person, but you can actually mute the handle as if it's a word, and it never even comes up in your in your thing at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I've had to do that for my own peace of mind. And so with her, though, what I noticed, though, was there was a tweet or a series of a conversation that was happening that came up in my timeline or something. And it was like, she doesn't do any real work. So and so does more than her. Blah, blah, blah. Er, I'm so sorry. (laughs) You may not like the woman and how she tweets. But let's just all be real. Twitter is not real life. We may we may disseminate information. But what people actually do with their work, what their actual value is in life. Is not measured by how they're tweeting. Let's just let's just be real. And that's what well, that's the issue I had personally, right? And so I made a comment or two or maybe three, I don't even remember. And she saw them. So apparently I've been on her radar too, but she just <laughs> ignores me as well. But so she said thank you. She goes, I know we don't always agree or something like that, but thank you or something. So we had a brief exchange. She was responding to me. Well, since she wasn't responding to me, I figured I'd ask her. I was like, yo, so would you be willing to have a conversation or come on my podcast or something like that? And she said, yeah, sure. So I already know their communications director. And so I got connected with her that way. We worked out the conversation. So we get on. We have a pre-conversation, right? Just kind of, you know, to set the parameters and just to talk a little bit. Because I've never talked to this woman before. I've never had any interaction before besides those few little tweets changed. Mm -hmm. And so I liked her. (laughs) That's just plain and simple. I had a really good conversation with her. And what people are not going to understand, because you're not me, you're not going to understand this. I'm a black attorney, right? I'm a black attorney that is trying to, has been trying to transition out of what I've been doing since I became an attorney. Like Mm -hmm. I came out of school during the financial crash. I had this vision in mind of the work I would be doing and the mode I'd be going into. And that was taken away from me. And I've been in a process of, of rebuilding. So to sit and talk with someone to understand what her trajectory was, to see someone doing kind of what I've been struggling to figure out how to do, that was just a really interesting conversation to me. So it's possible that I could have challenged her more directly or been more critical in some points. And I'm just gonna keep it real. 
I got so enthusiastic to finally talk to someone who understands how did this transition could possibly work and what it is to go from being the attorney kind of like, you know, working to, you know, pay your bills and pay your student loans and stuff to doing something that you're really passionate about that might not have been your actual, like what you studied, like, like she understands the transition. So for me personally, I got caught up in having that conversation and just having a discussion with someone that it completely, you know, I completely, to some extent, like, like I said, I got caught up in having that conversation, Mm -hmm. not having this broader conversation and being more critical and, oh my God, I should have challenged her on the one tweet. And I can't remember if she actually addressed, because there were some things that we talked about pre-conversation and I think you know obviously when you talk to people who aren't on the when sometimes they're a lot more frank and a lot more you know candid than they are when you're recording mm-hmm. and in some ways it's possibly like because I don't script I just have conversations with people so not everything comes out exactly the way people think they should so we just had a natural conversation and that's what happened with that episode and I thought it was a really good conversation. It wasn't the conversation people wanted because people wanted me to be fighting, screaming, cursing and yelling at her and telling her that she's the worst freaking human being on earth. Let's right. just be real. And, and and whether or not you believe that or not, you can say that for your own commentary. I'm sure there's been plenty of it. I'm going to keep moving on because a lot of people who were upset with me aren't patrons anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, let's just be real. You might have retweeted something, but it's not like you were even giving me a dollar. Right. And so I was expecting to have like this mass exodus. And I mean, there have been a couple of people who unsubscribed or, or who didn't. But but let's just, you know, the body of my work. I am consistently the same person I have been since I started this. And having that conversation with her was really was really cool for me. Um, and, and and I think it opens the door to have other conversations with her. But I, I mean... You know, folks are like, well, she's trying to rehabilitate herself through you. I'm like, I don't really know that that's true either. I don't think that she sees that she needs to rehabilitate herself because I don't think that she really thinks that who she has been has been wrong. She may concede and she did concede a little bit that maybe she, you know, could have been better in certain areas. But I don't think that she would say that she's been wrong. She was who she was. She was she was genuinely. I don't know. I'm not going to make a make a assessment of her genuineness, but she was who she was. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and that was the space that was provided for us to have a conversation. I've had conversations with lots of people. People were upset with me because I was I was talking about how happy I was to meet Donna Edwards during Netroots. I was very happy to meet Donna Edwards during Netroots, despite some of the the crazy thing about meeting Donna Edwards during Netroots was I had actually just been challenging Donna Edwards on Twitter, and then all of a sudden she shows up in the event we're at, and everybody's like, "Oh my God, Donna Edwards!" So when I introduced myself to her, she goes, "I know your name." Because I had just been in her Twitter mentions. <laughs> she was very gracious. And we had a great conversation right there. And we hugged. And But look, again, she's another black woman attorney. There's so few of us. There's so few of us. People really don't understand this, right? But she also went through law school as a single parent. So mm-hmm. there is another level that I can connect with people that isn't based on our politics necessarily per se, right? There's this personal cellular level that we're connected on. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to call out people on bad takes and bad politics, but that just means that sometimes Anoa is human and I need to connect with people and relate with them on a level that my audience may not like or understand. I have people telling me like, oh, I got to unfollow you. Cool. Do you, boo? Because you're not paying bills over here. <laughs> like, well, I, So, I mean, that might not be a good, you know, rundown for folks, but that that's where I was at. Like, I had a conversation and I enjoyed it. 
Now, it could have been more critical, could have been more challenging. Absolutely, I'm open to constructive criticism about it. You gave me some, quite a few people gave me some, but it wasn't a bad, it was a good conversation. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, too, one of the things that I've noticed is that when it comes to black women and black people in particular on Twitter, there's some things that I noticed. So on the one hand, I noticed that there seems to be a really massive um, excitement when two or more black people are fighting about mm-hmm. politics or fighting about anything. And it yep. reminds me a lot of like, you know, the, you see these, I'm reminded always of that scene in Django where mm-hmm. the, the slave master wants the slaves to fight. Like he literally has, has slave fights at, for entertainment. Right. Um, and I think there's a degree of sort of voyeuristic pleasure and, and almost a sort of, I think for some people, they want to live vicariously through the black person who's always willing to criticize only other black people and like try to tear them down. So they know that nowadays, you know, we sort of have this like liberal bubble of like you, if you're a white person, you can't call out other black, you can't call out black people, which I disagree with. But I think that there's this kind of, there's this idea that, okay, you only call out people like yourself. And so I think for some white liberals and potentially white progressives, as I've noticed, there is a certain, what seems like a certain type of joy in watching some other black people that they support, but usually only on the basis that they tear down other black people. The other thing I think that's important here too, is that there is definitely a double standard on who gets flack for people that they interview and people that they align themselves with, or even not necessarily align themselves with, but may agree with on one point or mm-hmm. one aspect, something that they, they connect with, like in your case, both being black women and black lawyers and having these concerns over reproductive rights, right? People see that and will freak out about it if they disagree on one thing, but then they will in the same day, go and retweet someone who's highly problematic, who maybe has suggested that we ally with actual white supremacists and, mm-hmm. you know, like the alt-right and, and not think anything of it. And so it's very interesting to me that I think there are certain people, and most of them tend to be black women, funny enough, who trigger um, <laughs> certain people online and certain responses, and not just online, but offline too, right? I think that, that in a lot of ways, black women are often not only marginalized, but at the same time, hyper visible uh, for people to criticize. And I'm wondering for you, how have you dealt with your position, again, as a black woman in new left media um, and alternative media, independent media? What have been some of the challenges that you have faced beyond what I've mentioned here and even brought up with regard to the Imani Ghani interview? Has there been something, uh, something else, other issues that you've um, dealt with that you could tell us a little bit about? I mean, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, is building, you know, building an audience. And you, I'm sure you, you understand this, building an audience and building support and really getting the voice out there, right? You know, having participation in spaces. And there are some folks who are like, oh my God, you're so great. I love you or whatever. And I'll, I'll, I'll get certain nods and certain respect, but it's really trying to, 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 to break into those larger platforms that can be a challenge. There are these spaces, right? that are predominantly male and they're predominantly white, right? Because if there are black folks or folks of color in spaces, they're usually men. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are so few spaces for us. And I'm not trying to necessarily do this full time per se, because quite honestly, I have a ton of student loan debt and I have two kids one year and go to college. So I don't know that anyone will actually pay me enough to transition from my current position to do this full time. But when we talk about uncompensated labor and a lot of the work in terms of we build with you know, building and curating information and content, right? 
um, that investment, I think that we put into people, because not that I'm trying to get Chapo money, but you know, like <laughs> it would be nice to get a little bit more. But at the same time, like I think this expectation that we're supposed to go the length and that we're supposed to, you know, mother and nurture folks without expecting anything return the respect factor like you're only respected as a voice so long as you stay within you know certain parameters because if you stray it's like the worst thing ever like what's happened with Imani anything and I'm not it's not you know people disagreed that's fine but like like people took it personally people were just like ridiculous and how could you say that like I'll go ahead like Walker is not perfect Folks should be criticizing Walker, too, because Walker is wrong. Like, folks who were attacking her because, oh, my God, you were a foreclosure attorney. Like, part of it, being an attorney and actually understanding what people do. Like, there are people in our spaces who are corporate attorneys, right, who also work in certain types of law that might be, like, abhorrent. But we're not attacking them because they're Uh the good black people on our side. So I really do think that we need to, like, step back. But as, you know, the few of us who are in these spaces having these conversations and dialogues, we need to hold our so-called comrades and allies more accountable because they will go so hard something about like my interview. Right. But then they'll let other stuff slide or it's not that or they didn't really mean or whatever the case. So the double standard that exists is something that's really hard. And for a while, like it's gotten a lot better. But for a while, like Ben and I would make the same point. Ben would get so much more elevation. I mean, he also has a bigger platform, but it's like Ben, and I had to get on him once too. I was like, you're literally saying what I said on your show last night. You better give me credit. Uh Don't be like Roland Martin stealing from black women on Twitter. But like, like I would find that that happens too. Like our voices just don't carry as much weight um, without someone else to validate or give us space. And that has been a challenge, you know, as building up, you know, space, and access um, to, to, to help. Because really, I mean, again, it it's great to get paid for what you do, but at the same time, it's really more about engaging and influencing people and helping folks expand their minds and understanding about not just, you know, candidates and politics, but about issues that, that we need to delve kind of deep on and, and, and start thinking about getting about what's possible. Like, I really think that you know, the next several cycles, next, you know, over the next generation, we have a lot of potential if we're laying the right groundwork and informing and engaging people the way they need to be at the local level. Um, that's not going to happen, you know, by relying on whomever can finally get a spot as an MSNBC commentator. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when we think about like movement journalism, we think about folks who are connected to these more radical progressive spaces. Like that's the type of system we need to figure out how to build out so that we're connecting people and providing alternative voices so that is one of my struggles I think I find as a I think it's something we, we struggle with as women period in these spaces right and I think as a black woman it is a little bit more difficult because you know um men are just I mean like I said these are very dominated male spaces and men are just more naturally inclined to gravitate towards other men to do stuff and I think when when they do come to us, it's usually very specific marquee issues and not really the same robust dialogue our male counterparts may may get. Mm-hmm. And I, I would even give, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I will give Ben credit though because I was his first co-host. Like he had a lot of people who would come on and do panels and contribute. He had contributors, but I remember he kept saying he was, I was the first person that he actually let co-host. 
Um, so Ben was slightly ahead of the curve. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, I w- the only thing I would say here is that there is, I think it's not so much about men being naturally inclined to speak to and only be able to hear other men, but I think mm-hmm. they're definitely socialized in this way. Right? Ah, good point. Good um, point. I think yeah. that they're, you know, we're kind of, even women too, I think we're kind of taught to see men as authority figures and correct. Um, and yeah, so sometimes we don't even hear each other, which is really, it's an interesting problem and something that today as we're speaking on International Women's Day, funny enough, right, um, right. we need to kind of work toward changing. Um, the last thing I actually wanted to ask you is about um, your family's political history as well and how that touched on and changed some of your own political trajectory. I mean, you've mentioned them a bit in this interview, but I'd be curious Mm -hmm. to know, especially now that you're sort of flirting with socialism and you're thinking about moving a little bit further to the left, at least in terms of your organizing too, how did your family play a role in that? And what is your family's connection to leftism? I mean, this is a podcast about leftists of color after all. So (laughs) I wanted to learn a little bit about their history as well. Well, and it's, it's so funny because I was actually, I was scheduled back in December to have a conversation with Fred Hampton Jr. ahead of the, 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 the anniversary. Um, and we were, you know, just, just schedules and family life, whatever. And I dropped the ball and we haven't been able to reschedule, but my stepfather, so my, my father, you know, my father's a pretty progressive guy, uh, grew up in families from the East coast. So my stepfather's from Jersey city. My mom and my dad are from New York. My mom's from upstate. My dad's from Brooklyn. My dad is the is is an odd dude, right? My dad grew up in in the projects, grew up in Gowanus projects, became a vegetarian at like seventeen or something like that, became vegan in his early twenties. So my dad's been vegan like over four years. He was a black acupuncturist. He actually um studied a little bit under Matulu before Matulu was arrested. Um, Matulu Shakur, that is. So like my parents have this very interesting. My stepfather is a former Black Panther and um. He uh, was a part of the founding group for uh, Critical Resistance, mm. um, and he is a part of the Jericho movement, and he worked for American Friends Service Committee, and he's done a lot of work around um, prison abolitionists and just 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 prison, just prison uh, uh, political prisoners and prisoners of war. And just he's done. My stepfather testified before the UN, and just all types. I mean, they're they're all. My mom. My mom has also been similarly involved in. You know, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, New African People's Organization. Um, she and my stepfather consider themselves citizens of the Republic of New Africa. Mm. Um, I think my stepfather may have actually held position in the provisional government before. They were friends with, all three of them were friends with the, the late Chokwe Lumumba. Uh, my dad actually has a story about the first time he came down south. He was in, it was in the 70s and they came to, they were in Mississippi and with Chokwe. And, um, he, he said, I think he said, like, they were in a supermarket, so somebody called them boy, and they all bust out laughing, but then they all made sure to hurry up and leave town. <laughs> like, yeah, my dad's a kid from Brooklyn. Um, so, 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 so my family, uh, my godmother, who, who became my legal guardian in high school, she's, um, she did civil rights and, 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 and um, you know, police brutality cases out of Chicago, John Burge. Uh, Choke was one of her mentors, um, the, the organization he was a part of, the National Conference of Black Lawyers that she's a part of, I'm actually now on the board of. So so it's a very interesting trajectory in, in world, right? And and being in that world and space, so so growing up in a really socially conscious, politically conscious black, you know, household, um, you know, electoral politics, that wasn't the type of stuff we talked about, whatever. A lot of it was like, you know, there was protest actions and really being deeply involved in, in, in actual direct organizing and change work. Um, 
is the type of stuff. I mean, like I remember one of my earliest protests that I can remember participating in was the anti-Columbus Day protest. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, we would go to we would go visit, you know, um, folks who were political prisoners. And and I mean, there there was there was this really interesting relationship to 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 thinking about politics that were pro-black and 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 just making sure just even as a kid just making sure we understood the real history right like i remember um writing a paper you know you got to write about the conquistadors or columbus or whatever usually when you're in middle school and my stepfather we were living in chicago at the time we had moved to chicago he took me over to the puerto rican culture center and we checked out some books and i was able to write about pizarro but i was able to write you know a more accurate reflection of pizarro and my teacher was like i've never even heard of these sources but they were about <laughs> books so they had no choice but to accept it mm-hmm. um, i had a similar issue my junior year of high school when i was actually living i lived in west virginia for a year when i was in high school and we had to pick an Amer someone who we felt like a i forget what it was something about an american and so i did a side of shakur and my teacher was like <laughs> i couldn't do her because i couldn't find any books on her in our school library wow. and i rolled my eyes so i actually had to before she would let me do my paper now mind you J. Edgar Hoover was on our list. Malcolm X was on our list. Martin Luther King was on our list. But J. Edgar Hoover was on our list. Wow. When I saw J. Edgar Hoover, I was like, well, I'm going to do a side of Shakur. So, and, and, you know, I had explained who she was to the class. I remember one of my classmates turned around to me and said, isn't you supporting the Black Panthers like me supporting the KKK? And it was just the oddest question. I'm like, no. And then I had explained to the class and I ended up doing well on the paper. But I had to have more sources than everyone else. So we, we fought it. But still, I still, I still sourced the heck out of my paper in high school. Good for but you. I, <laughs> but those, well, well, I was like I said, I was living. With my got my godmother's a law professor, and and um, you know the 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 lawyers who represented Asada and Angela, and uh, coming out of NCBL, this is their fiftieth anniversary this year. Those were her mentors when mm-hmm. she was law school, right? So so she's already coming through that vein as well on the legal arm side of things. So growing up with all these people has been very interesting. But again, like when you're a kid in these spaces, um, and it particularly growing up with my parents, like we were we weren't well off, you know, we were poor. <laughs> we were poor. And so there's a part of me that grew up kind of resenting the movement stuff mm. because we were poor. And like when you're living in someplace, like when you're living in a regular neighborhood and you're going to a regular school, so it wasn't like I went to an Afrocentric school like the one my mom teaches at now, you know, you, I already got hit with the African name. Then I had the quote unquote nappy hair growing up. Then you want to put me in a dashiki every once in a while and send me to school too. Like, <laughs> I was looking to get beat up. So as a kid, so our socialization at home was so vastly different than our socialization in the world. My brothers both started going by various nicknames because, you know, they their African names are a little bit more complex than mine. Hmm. And so, you know, people, we, we, we assimilated in our own ways and had our own struggles growing up. But finding myself, but I always had that, you know, I always had my basic analysis, understanding racism and injustice and things like that. As I struggled with more of the how radical on the political spectrum would I actually end up being? I'm still not as radical as my parents are, um, not by the stretch of the imagination, but they see me trending more towards them and they get so excited. And my dad is like, that's okay because still we get to bring all the people on the land You'll be there. And so it's really interesting being in spaces with my dad and going to events with him now that we're all here in Atlanta. We all, everyone lives in Atlanta now. And my dad and my stepdad both live here in Atlanta. I go to stuff with my stepdad and I get to listen to people and I get to be a part and share space with him. And hopefully I'll be able to have him back on. My stepfather, like I said, he, he did 17 years um, in prison, stemming from an incident in, with, with, with Virginia State Troopers that ended up, he has a, he has a similar incident to like the Sada story basically. Um, his his two comrades, one of them was my uncle, 
was uh, uh they were shot by Virginia State Troopers. It was it was you know nonsense in the seventies, and he actually ended up doing being in prison I think for seventeen years. Wow. It resulted in, in my step my uncle's murder. So there's actually a book written by his one of his comrades, Safia Bukhari, about you know their experience. But but listening to him and talking to him, so he doesn't do he's now Muslim as well. So he does not do electoral politics, right? Him personally. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting when we have conversations and, and he understands where I'm coming from because I'm like, I understand that we're building towards and we're working to build these other systems. However, I just can't see ground. Like I can't not be involved in this in, in terms of what's going on with school board and you know, mayoral stuff. So I still see that we have to do both and right so that makes me a little bit you know i guess more less left than them in some ways right as when it comes to the electoral side of stuff but i think when we start talking about you know how to empower people um how to like build our own schools and our own communities and things like that i think that i'm i'm right there with them where that needs to be at you know gaining access to resources like my mother now teaches she's been teaching i think it's five years at a school here called Quilombo. it's an independent african-centered school it's so beautiful going in there. The kids, you know, kids are a pain no matter where they are, what age they are. <laughs> but they do like rituals. They, it's built into the process. So kids, you know, yes, they're getting the regular curriculum, whatever, but they're also getting curriculum that is infused with their history and they see themselves in everything that they're doing. And there's a community that's built around that school and the families. And it's a really, you know, important thing, particularly when, when youth are growing and trying to see themselves. So, I appreciate the fact that my kids, though, have been able in more recent years to be kind of around their grandparents and the activism. And they as they're starting to learn more about that stuff and they're like, wait a minute, Papa Masai did what? Mommy, grandma did what? <laughs> did like, wait, 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 they know who? Like, oh, wow. So so it's, it is interesting in thinking about the family um, as the oldest. I've kind of, you know, been connected to it the most. Um, my younger sister comes along to stuff with me and she kind of plays a system with me. Like she's been out to people summon some other stuff for me. So I have my foot in spaces my parents aren't necessarily in. Right. But at the same time. So like with the uh, power to the polls, I spoke at the power to the polls event down here and my mom and my stepfather came and I was surprised that my stepdad wanted to come. Like I did. He was upset. He was like, why didn't you tell me about this? And I was like, oh, because I didn't think it was your thing. But what he appreciated about it, and then, you know, there's a lot of complaints about the Women's March folks and the power to the polls and, like, the way they do things. But I was really surprised that he was positive about it because they had, a like, a like a progressive village where you could meet, like, organization folks. So he really liked that setup. And he was like, you know, you got to kind of reach the people where they are. Mm-hmm. So he was like, hopefully, you know, there will be steps that, that go beyond this. But he appreciated he also appreciated that somebody slightly radical like me got on the microphone because he was like, I don't know that anyone else has a background like yours. And he liked the fact that I was able to get a a white supremacy (laughs) in there when I was talking. But it was cool seeing these spaces through their eyes and all that they've seen and done. Um, And then also, like, I'll, I'll call them up and I'll ask them questions. Like, I'll ask my stepdad questions. Like, how do you do this? How do you get this going? Like, how do we do this? And it's, it's a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of time and it takes resources that we don't necessarily have either. And so I, I appreciate that he and I are in different spaces politically, but we're actually way more connected and similar. And he's actually really surprised when he listens to like my podcast. Um, and he'll start suggesting people for me to interview or connecting with folks. And I'm like, yeah, or he'll be surprised who I'm already connected to. He's like, oh, you know about this already? I'm like, yeah, daddy. 
Like he actually <laughs> just saw he actually just saw Black Panther. My mom had went with us. My mom, my dad, and my stepmom. We all went together. My stepdad just saw it because he was like he didn't want to see it, but he finally decided to see because he's not into movies like that. But he saw it because he was like, "There's been so much commentary around it, and people want to have discussion groups and come meet for coffee and talk about it." And so he was like, I, he's like, you wouldn't believe what people are saying about this movie. I was like, I know, Daddy. Like, I'm very active on social media. I know what people are saying. I've seen it all. So it was just, it was interesting to have a conversation with him, with his experience and background about issues and stuff. Like, I would even talk to him when we were going through all that stuff in the summertime about the people joining with the alt-right and stuff. You know, I would talk to him about that stuff in his own organizing, his own work. Like I said, they work with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, he, he's done a lot of work, a lot of work around prison control units and stuff. So really trying to understand how to find a niche, how to communicate and reach people and, and, and kind of what's the best use of energy. And so he gets on me about arguing with people on social media all the time, <laughs> but at the same time, he gets that, you know, kind of being in this vein in terms of like, you know, information creation is a little different than people who do the actual organizing. So I, I, I appreciate when I have the opportunity to kind of shadow him and go to events and, and learn more. Because um, it helps me kind of start figuring out who, who I want to be as an activist or organizer, like, you know, as a person. And as I'm kind of leaning left, right? Because, um, again, you, you, I've never been good about titles and stuff or lab- labels, but joining, you know, DSA... And, and obviously there's certain principles and, and, and ideas that have already been natural, um, but I haven't like called myself a socialist or I don't really get into like that socialist versus capitalist analysis in my commentary, not because I don't think it's important. It's because I'm going to be honest with everyone and, and Alexander the man who disappeared on us from Twitter, but like he actually challenged me last summer. A lot of stuff happened last summer. Last summer was radical and wild. But he was just like, he was like, you know, your commentary about race will be so on point, but you don't go that next step and start talking about capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I, and honestly, part of my issue is that I'm not, I don't think I'm as well versed, right, in a lot of the critique and analysis. Not that I don't understand, I understand the differences, but if I think that I'm going to speak authoritatively on something, I want to really understand the nuance. Mm-hmm. So much better than I do. And it's, so I understand it for my own purposes that I'm comfortable identifying a certain way. But I don't delve into certain conversations because I think like you, Devin, there's so many people who do it really well. Like I'd rather just share from you or like engage one of you all to talk about it. Right. Because, you know, I'm going to be all real with everyone. Like I'm, a, I'm really busy. I don't have time to read up on enough stuff mm-hmm. either. Like there are some people in our space, I won't name their names, who I can't stand, and they're real good about quoting academic stuff. That's because they're able to sit around and read all the time. I don't, I don't have that luxury. And so I'll rely on you or Devin or whomever else as more of the expert on certain stuff versus me trying to pretend I'm all super, you know, expert on socialism and communism, things like that. I'm just like, eh, I'll have to, I just have to ask somebody a question. And so that's just me in my own, you know, personal space. But I but it but it is I'm really um, appreciative of the space that is here locally with our DSA. And I look forward to seeing where it can go. Um, I think the way that they have allowed like I mentioned Aaron Parks earlier, Aaron, who, who's she's a little older than I am, black woman, really fierce, all around, really bold, out there socialist. I think watching how she's been allowed to have access and not allowed, but she's come in and taken space and they've yielded to her. 
And I think seeing the opportunity for more of us to be in those spaces and she's pushing them to go out into the greater community here. Um, I'm looking, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do. And I'm, I'm looking forward to get more involved at the national level with DSA um, as well, because I think that nationally, there has been, I mean, I had already, like I said, I had already been looking towards joining a DSA. Like, I'm not really a joiner with <laughs> <laughs> organizations and stuff, but I did go ahead and do it because I've actually met a, quite a few really amazing people who organize with DSA across the country. Whether national figures may have their issues, there are some amazing people from various chapters who I've met, who I've engaged in conversation to kind of just ascertain more. And I'm like, okay, this does seem like a space that I can fit in. And I would like to see more of how to bridge maybe the, the space between where my, my, my stepfather organizes and does work to see if there's collaboration opportunities and stuff like that. So, so it's really interesting like to be that next generation trying to carve out space. Like his generation, he's approaching 70. His generation you know, went through so much. Like you know, he's a former Vietnam, he was in the Marines in Vietnam, came back home was in the Panthers, was in other movement spaces. Um, his best friend was murdered. He ended up going to jail and he came out and still has done really amazing work. And he's a great dad and grandpa and stuff. And he's just such a wealth of knowledge and resource for me, you know, and, and it's such a blessing to be able to talk to him. And he's the humblest man on earth. Like he hates when I introduce him. And that, that's also, that's a part of the Islam a little bit too. Um, I think the, you know, but at the same time, he's, it's just really, like I said, my mom, on the other hand, she's just, she, she loves, she loves the limelight. Yeah, it's shining on her. But it's, it's, it's been really good um, with all of them really getting to know and understand more. And apparently I'm teaching them things, right, through my interviews and my podcast, because they're seeing a space that they had completely rejected. You know, electoral politics in these spaces, these, you know, white progressive led orgs are something that they didn't deal with. And for good reason. Right. Like their generation has good reason for being skeptical. We have good reason for being skeptical, uh -huh. too. But I think the landscape that we're we're in now, um, you know, is, is a different is a different space um, and re requires multiple strategies. So so that's that's the family bit. And who knows what my kids might do? My daughter is a super. She's very much into LGBTQ advocacy and environmental issues. So I don't know where they'll take it to next. But um, Max probably just going to go to the NFL. He probably won't do any <laughs> activism. <laughs> I think he said he'll write his sister checks for her work. But, um, but it's going to be interesting to see where the next generation after us takes this too. Because I think that we're on the precipice of something if we can sustain it. Hopefully we can. Um, I just want to say one last thing, though. I definitely now feel like you owe me a picture of yourself as a little kid in a dashiki. Um, <laughs> I'll look forward oh, to I getting think, that I email. I have one for you. I think I have one with me with, with something with maybe with a dress with pants. Like my dad had a thing about making me wear pants with dresses. <laughs> so I think I actually have one that I can send. Well, definitely send it to me because now it's going to be how I will forever remember oh, this interview and this discussion. Oh, head wraps <laughs> and everything when I was like up until I was probably about 11. Um, <laughs> or I can get, I'll get one for my mom. Yeah. You should just send me a zip drive full of a zip, a zip, <laughs> a zip file of pictures of you in um, African, like, neo-African garb. It was, it was okay when we were in New York. Cause when we lived in New York, we lived in Harlem and the Bronx, right? right. So New York in the eighties was fine. Cause there was, there was a lot of that, particularly in Harlem. There was a lot of that. Right. I mean, when we, we ran up and down 125th street, my aunt made puppets and you know, she was a vendor. We would run up and down 125th street. My mom, my mom still says it. She goes, honey, 
I could drop y'all off at one one person's stall, come back, y'all would have been fed and got a new <laughs> book. And so, like, it was a very different culture in New York. Then we moved to Chicago, South Side of Chicago. It's a, it's a whole other world. You were African booty scratcher, like all this stuff. It was a completely different world. Yeah. And it was, and, and it was, it was, it was just, it was complete opposite. Well. It's really interesting background, and uh, like I said, <laughs> I look forward to getting the zip file of photos. Um, thank you so much, Anoa, for speaking with me. This was great, and I learned a lot, and I appreciate you sharing so much about your own uh, changes politically and that of your family. And I don't know, I wish you the best of luck in, in all that you do. So thank you so much again. I appreciate you so much for providing space. I, I mean, I think your project, I think this is amazing what you've been doing. And I'm, I'm so excited for all the work you continue to do. And I'm glad we got to hang out in New York and hopefully we'll get to hang out again in the future. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. You can find this and more episodes by going to Spreaker, SoundCloud, or iTunes and entering simply Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also keep up with the Left Pocket Project on Twitter, Facebook, and other places where you get your fine social media fix. By the way, just as an FYI, for those of you who haven't checked out the Twitter or Facebook page yet, each week I do a special feature called Left POC of the Week, where I focus on a specific leftist of color or movement that was led by and comprised of leftists of color. This week I focused on the life and work of a woman by the name of Marieli Franco, who was a leftist city councilwoman in Rio and Brazil, uh, who was recently assassinated specifically on March 14th. You can find more about her life and work, as well as the life and work of other leftists of color in the U.S. and abroad by visiting the Facebook page or the Twitter page and checking out Left POC of the Week. The other thing, just in terms of quick news, is that don't forget that Richard and I have the special series called Reading Revolution. Next month's Reading Revolution will focus on media and propaganda. So if you have any questions, concerns, or things that you'd like for us to discuss as we talk about media and propaganda as it relates to the left and also against the left, please feel free to shoot us a line on The Curious Cat by going to Curious Cat and searching for, again, Left POC, and we will address your comments and questions on our next show. Finally, I'd like to give a huge shout out and thank you to all of the people supporting the Left Pocket Project on Patreon. From dollar donors to $5 comrades, your contributions go a long way. If you would like to add to these contributions, feel free to visit patreon.com, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash left POC to show your support. Thanks so much and have a good one.